0: Um,
1: so, Vanessa and uh, Carlo obviously need, need no introduction. And I think Fred Harrison now needs uh, no introduction since you saw him there on the film. He, he's the research director of the Land Research Trust uh, and um, originally was uh, was here at Oxford at UCL. Um, author of uh, a, a key book called The Power of the Land, uh, and uh, is, uh, has these very interesting ideas on, on land reform that uh, we began to hear about in, in, in the film. We're also joined at the end there by, by Robert Holton, um, who is, uh, was the campaign's director for Eradicating Ecoside, the movement that you, you heard a little about in, in the film. And now Robert is the environment, environment and sustainability coordinator for the charity Student Hubs. So we, we have some so some contemporary uh, ecological voices together with Vanessa's and my Shakespearean voices, and uh, we'll uh, we'll sort of try and uh, field some questions uh, about how, how we pull those things together. Um, I I just have one initial thought. Uh, I, I don't know if anybody wants to respond to this, but it was it was rather wonderful seeing the wolf and the links uh, in the film there, because, of course, one of the things that Shakespeare explores in King Lear is um, is where King Lear goes out from the apparently civilised world of the court, which is really, of course, a barbaric world, to the apparent wilderness, the wild space, the heath, where indeed there are many there are references to the wild cat, to the wolf, and to the, the, the sort of and the bear, the, the the cruelty away of the animal world. But in a way what what, what Leah shows is that actually it's the world of power and land ownership that is the true cruel place, and that in the in the wilderness uh, Amidst the, uh, the, 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 the wild animals, there is actually um, a kind of harmony and a kind of truth. So um, that was for uh, me a, a, a wonderful little moment of conjunction between, between film and talk. And I, I don't know, if Carla, you want to pick up on that talk? Yeah, I'm really
2: glad. I'm uh, really glad you said that because, uh, well, as, as uh, Peter Smith, the CEO of the Wild World Trust, says, you know, there is this extraordinary harmony that's created. The lynx is a great example, the beaver is a great example. Of course, there are many other ones, and uh, you know, we can learn so much, as Fred asked and Peter replies. We can learn so much from nature, it's, it's there standing in front of us how, how we can best manage uh, land and the environment. Um, but of course, you know, King Lear is, is wonderful too as a play because um, you know, we have these, these great landowners, these great leaders who then are reduced to, to a sort of destitute state, you know, landless, roaming the land like you know, the beggar, Tom, and you know, a madman, considered madman, and uh, you know it's extraordinary. I walk down the streets of, of London and I see people like that. I see a lot of people like that, and more and more of them. Uh, people who, other people, sort of members of you know sort of world to do society, just sort of rush by, God forbid they should approach me with our mad, uh, mad utterances. But uh, there they are, and are what I'd say—it's fair to say—that they're they're a consequence of our unjust uh, land and taxes. So um, it's extraordinary that, uh, that Shakespeare tapped into this. with Lear. Um, and it's um, it's wonderful re-reading the play having the opportunity to reread read the play and reevaluate it because of what the knowledge that I've acquired in the last the last decade or so. <laughs> um, so um, yeah, it's, it's, it's wonderful. For making wretches, um, we it's taken too little care of. OK, so
1: uh, this, is, this is a very, very formal questions and answers. Um, the only thing we ask is that uh, there is a roving mic. Um, so uh, wait for the mic uh, before asking a question. And um, there's um, a gentleman over there as well. <coughs>
3: Thank you very much
4: for your very interesting presentation today. Um, how are land and tax laws to be considered in relation to the uh, demand for land for uh, crop production and for quite possibly biomass fuel production if we are, if we are to provide ourselves with a cleaner form of energy uh, in the context also of an increase in global population? Well, uh, what we need to come to terms with is that the solutions do not spring from the way things are today. If we try to resolve the sorts of issues that you're alluding to, we won't actually solve them. The reason is that within the existing social paradigm, there there can be no solution because the rules, the rule of law that Vanessa was telling us about, have been structured to preclude uh, the, what's called the sustainable solutions to the problems that we refer to. We need those solutions, but, uh, but speaking personally, I do not, frankly, see us achieving uh, the kinds of reforms that are needed in order that we have a benign relationship with nature and future generations of human beings, and all the rest of uh, the species that occupy this planet, unless we change the rules of the game. So, we can wrestle with specific answers to particular questions of the sort you've raised now, uh, try and find accommodations with the existing system, but ultimately, I believe they, they will be futile because we are trying all the time to compress those solutions into the existing set of laws and value system which will not allow effective solutions. So, frankly, I can't actually offer a sensible answer to your question because I don't know how things are going to be in the future, how they need to be. You don't need me to offer you the trite answers that, that come out of textbooks because they're there, but they all basically seek to accommodate the existing power structure and distribution of income, which is which is calibrated to create these very problems and therefore there is no solution. Um, Somewhere, and uh, the beginning is a fiscal reform, and it will take one nation to actually implement it in order to uh, demonstrate the, the ramifications of considerable uh, benefits that arise from that fiscal reform. May I take a couple of minutes to put into a wider context what Vanessa Redgrave has done for us today? Because unless we see beyond the limited horizons, we're not, in my view, we're not actually going to achieve the changes. Uh, what Vanessa has done is taken the themes from the film and she's re-read one of the classics, classic texts in literature, her sphere of interest. We need that to be done in all of the social sciences Economists need to reread their classic texts. Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations. Sociologists need to read social statics. Herbert Spencer's classic text. Uh, And it's the same with all the classic texts, including Locke's second treatise on government. If we applied the the sort of sense, the the principles that we seek to articulate in the film, in the rereading of those classic texts, we will begin to see uh, the solution to so many of our contemporary problems but the problem is this i tried to reread john locke's text 40 years ago when i was just a couple of dollars up from here at univ reading ppe Uh, i did not score high marks with my tutor for trying to do so i spent the last 40 years trying to get social scientists to do what Vanessa has done with literature, to go back to a, a classic text and say, let's see what we can learn from this that we've all been missing. Economists will not do that, nor will political scientists, nor will sociologists. I know they won't do it because I've tried for 40 years to persuade them to do that, just to go back to their founding texts. For the last 10 years, I've been thinking about what is it that leads to the failure, the the unwillingness to reread those texts based on the sorts of themes in the film. Uh, I won't go through my list of explanations, but we can see today, uh, in what's called the crisis of capitalism, one consequence of the failure. Vanessa referred to the the contemporary problem that we have. So we're not talking about a trivial, Exercise when we say we need to go back to the founding fathers and see what it was they were telling us about in their time, which they could see with clarity. That includes Adam Smith, who talked about what policy would be appropriate for an industrial society, and he said it was the rent of land. It includes Herbert Spencer, who said, If we're going to have a science of society, what should it be telling us about? He said, We need Special laws about land, the rents belong to the community. And Locke's second treatise also doesn't quite end up saying that, but if you read it correctly, there is no other conclusion to draw other than that he laid the foundations for what Locke, uh, Smith went on to say, Herbert Spencer, and others like him, all the way through to Joseph Stiglitz. But our social scientists will not reread read their classic texts in the way that Vanessa has done with one of those in literature. And until we can actually get the social science community to do so, we're not actually going to get these reforms for reasons that, as I say, I won't go into. So it needs a nation at that level to begin the process of change. Yes, we need a global context, and this is where uh, the work of uh, my colleague's uh, organization comes into being the need to conserve nature on a global scale with certain fundamental rights to take action. But I don't believe any one nation will actually take that action until they just go back to their original founding texts and reread what they were telling us about in the past in relation to them just to sort of follow follow through on on that a little bit. Of course, Vanessa didn't only reread King
1: Lear through the film. (laughs) She also read the film through King Lear. Mm. And it may be that the the example she's given us there of a a sense of a dialogue between different sorts of texts can can help with this problem. I'm I'm very strong of all the the classic political economists who address this. The, the, the sorts of question um, that Fred's interested in in the film matter <coughs> so much today. The greatest example is John Ruskin, who, in books like his his collection of essays *Unto His Last*, says the the basis of economics is not just questions of labor and capital, but it's also clean water, clean air, and an unpolluted earth. And the striking thing about Ruskin is that he formulated his social theory and his his political economy, through his reading of literature, Ruskin is profoundly shaped by Shakespeare and by the Bible. And it, it may be that the way to get social scientists to reread their texts is to is to break down the barrier between a, a literary or a cultural way of thinking about the world and an communistic or, or social scientific one. Uh, can I just quickly say, well, I mean,
2: um, uh, two years ago, was the, sorry, long well, now three years ago, 2012, was the uh, centenary of um, Prime Minister David Lloyd George's famous People's Budget of 1909. Now, it was very interesting to read in the papers this was brought up a lot, you know, the People's Budget. Uh, and a lot was said about it, oh, and perhaps some of those ideas have been applied to the day. What was really interesting though is one of the, the cornerstones of his budget was a land tax, was a land value tax. No one mentions that. that. No one has mentioned that at all. Um, and he was, I mean, he was quite vehement about it too. Uh, he put his whole career on the line for it. Um, that was the one ingredient that would have transformed this country at a time when it was going through a, a difficult you know, economic crisis. Um, He didn't have the support that he needed. Of course, parliament was populated mostly by by land owning interests, so they did everything they possibly could to to kill it. We live in different times, (coughs) a time of mass communication, Um, more democratic times in many ways. Uh, There is a great opportunity there if we're able to spread the message for people to start to think for themselves and sort of look beyond the the old paradigms. Know, start to think outside the box. So I, I, I'm very hopeful. I see I see great opportunities. But I agree with Ted, but Fred. Sorry, Ted. Fred. Uh, I agree with Fred that uh, you know you have to start somewhere. I mean, you mentioned on a sort of planetary scale. Well, I think if if one country can start to implement this and show how positive and productive um, and dynamic it is for every sector of society, other people will pay attention. I mean. If you look at Hong Kong, Hong Kong is a very interesting example, and Fred knows this very well. Well, Hong Kong, not many people know this, but the land that is Hong Kong is not freehold land. It's leasehold. So most of the tax that's paid there is actually paid on the rents of land that people use, which is why Hong Kong has been and continues to be this, this powerhouse, this economic powerhouse of, of, of the industry. They they they've shown that actually when you know you take away taxes from productivity, you know you will have more productivity. I mean it stands to reason, it's sort of logic, isn't it? If you tax people, if you punish people for working, for being enterprising, for 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 uh, for being industrious, you're going to have a lot less of it, aren't you? Whilst if you start to decrease those taxes on that, you're going to have a lot more of it. There are going to be more opportunities open. There'll be a system where instead of employees fighting each other, competing for jobs, it'll be the other way around. You'll have employers competing to get employees because there'll be more opportunities for people to create their own businesses. At the moment, the current tax system destroys those hopes, those opportunities, particularly small businesses. Anyways, what I'm going to say for now. Can question? The
1: gentleman there. Hi, um, at the beginning of the movie, I mentioned the 3,000 corporates, and I'm interested in how the, the land tax would address that because you could have a company, say, like BP, if you pass a land tax law in the UK, a company like BP probably owns a very little land actually in the UK. Um, but if you think the, um, you know, the environmental impact it has around the world, especially all, I mean, a lot of those corporates probably own very little land, but they're the ones that are having the most impact on the environment, so how would, how would you address that situation?
3: Cool. Hi, I, um, I have a question, and I think with regards to corporates, and maybe British corporates like BP or Shell, we, we need the remit to make sure that we can govern what they're doing internationally. And this is where the UN the the of I mean, its international remit comes, comes into play, and Polly Higgins, the lawyer you saw speaking in the film, Uh, the campaign around educating ecocide is about making ecocide, the large scale structure of the ecosystem, a crime at the international level. So in the UN, and basically there are how many countries signed up to the UN to the Rome Statute, and the Rome Statute governs the International Criminal Court, who currently punish all crimes against peace, which includes crimes of humanity and genocide. And interestingly, genocide was only a crime after the Second World War. Before that, we didn't actually have a term for the mass the attempted destruction of a particular race. And so now we're putting an aim to the mass destruction of the earth, and we think it's sensible, but that's illegal. On the scale we're we'll saying today, you think of what happened in the Gulf of Mexico, what's happening now in the Canadian tar sands, and, you know, all over the world. And basically, you need to amend the Rome Statute. you need a two-thirds majority of 82 votes to make an amendment, which could put in place a new law, i.e. your ego And recently, we saw it amended for crime and aggression, which came forward into the statue about a decade ago. So we're only talking about persuading 82 people globally to vote to change the Rome statue and then you bring in a whole new form of rule, not predicated on property but predicated on trusteeship, which says we must be careful stewards of our land because you know, ultimately we do have a lot of power whether that's a good thing or not and we've got to use that power responsibly. You know, We're not the owners of the earth but we need to act responsibly. And so I think bringing a rule like that at the international level will make sure that the CEO's making decisions in an office in London, which has a huge impact on indigenous communities, to the climate, or the way over in Canada, can be held accountable, because the law at the international level, in the criminal court, could pierce like, the wall of protected rights that a corporation has and actually be able to put that person in the dock, uh, or you know, the head of a bank who funds suicide, or even the head of state who condones suicide, but ultimately this isn't really about putting people in prison, this is about putting in place a measure to stop people even considering committing ecocide in the first place because they know they could be held personally accountable and go to prison. And if you're interested, uh, in thirtieth of September last year there was a mock ecocide trial in the Supreme Court of the UK and two CEOs of found guilty of oil extraction in Canada and then in March this year we're going to see the sort of the kind of, their prosecution to see what happens now they've been tried for ecocide. Thank
1: you. Sorry. Yes, so can I just, quickly,
2: because he, he, he did mention land value tax, uh, too, how that will affect. Well, I mean, here are two very interesting examples of, of, of how this this idea can affect people in, in different ways. One is where it's implemented and one where, where <coughs> it isn't. Well, you know, in Botswana, in Africa, the government there negotiated with the De Beers uh, diamond they negotiated that the revenues, the rent revenues of the, the, the diamonds that were being mined would flow, a vast proportion of the, of the revenue would flow into the public purse. would go to government to provide for infrastructure, schools, hospitals, roads, etc. The consequence of that is Botswana has the highest standard of living in sub-Saharan It's it's extraordinary what what the impact of that has had. So it shows that there is a relationship, you know, there there can be a relationship between corporations and companies looking to exploit natural resources and the benefits that can be gained for communities, for countries through that exploitation. Now, the other end of the spectrum, you have what we have in in the Niger Delta, you know, Shell, for example, what they've done there. The complete opposite. None of the revenue has gone to local. They've, they've been allowed to, to kind of devastate you know, that, that area in, in ways that are unimaginable, the number of films on it recently. It's just the more you see it, the more shocked you are of the environmental destruction, the pollution, the damage to the local communities, the poverty, the conflict that, is, that this has caused. You know, and, and sometimes you hear economists talk about you know, the revenue curse, or the, uh, the natural resource curse. Now, ca- countries with. With vast natural resources, precious metals, etc., on a coast, because this will inevitably lead to this form of exploitation and environmental damage. Well, it, no, it doesn't have to be that way if the rules are written differently and negotiated differently, as they as they were in Botswana. So I just wanted to sit, touch on that in a sort of more kind of specific way, related to you know, a land value tax on, on natural resources. Mm.
1: It's very
0: Taking us back to perhaps just sort of a more general um, uh, table, um, thanks to Vanessa for a wonderful reading I mm-hmm. thought of King Lear and the way it brought enclosure acts, right up to date in terms of uh, how we're thinking about land today. And to return to Fred's comments about how we need to broaden our understanding of the problems of what I think is the historical deafness of today, where um, people are thinking in such a narrow paradigm. And this, I think, is what we offer in the humanities. It is the ability to think holistically, which includes thinking historically. And just a slight anecdote. Yesterday, I was browsing in periodicals of the 1880s and nobody ever reads anymore. I came across a wonderful article on the responsibilities of bank directors, written after a major bank failure in Scotland, where, apparently, in Scotland, bank directors were held directly responsible for the failures of their bank legally. <laughs> um, wonderful things will confirm when it turns to history. <laughs> yeah. So I would absolutely endorse the notion that social science should be married very strongly to humanities and rereading of the texts, be there in the literary, historical, but just an understanding of the world in which we live, which is not at the present,
5: it is of the past as well.
4: In my view, the greatest problem that the academic community faces is not the detail of how to implement change, because that's actually uh, been done time and again throughout the world over the centuries. And if you want to look at the land value tax, you can go to Hong Kong, but you can go to Denmark or Australia to see the the detail of the implementation. That's not a problem. The problem is an epistemological one. Particularly with reference to land, land as a concept and rent have been written out of the narrative, they're not there. And if you want an example of that, you should read the series of articles that are appearing in the Financial Times now under the uh, strapline Capitalism in Crisis. Distinguished economists, social commentators, policy makers are all contributing to this one challenging problem of the crisis in capitalism. And they're being asked, is there an alternative? And almost unanimously, the answer is, well, no, actually, because there's no- nothing to replace the market economy. They cannot conceive of an alternative to the existing social system. And there is only one reason why that their minds have been closed to the potential for an alternative to the existing system of capitalism, and that's because this one little word, four-letter word, land, has been excluded. Quite deliberately, if you read the uh, history of uh, economic theory through the neoclassical school, the word land has been uh, subordinated to the word capital. Rent is just another form of income. (coughs) There's nothing special about these two words. The consequence is that our policy makers are not able to visualize an alternative. And
5: because there is no
4: alternative, they resort to using emotive words like greedy bankers and uh, pedantic ideas like, let's re-regulate the banks. No notion of how to alter the structure of the system so that we actually move beyond capitalism to include the kind of values that we sought to uh, discuss in the film. So, frankly, for the social sciences, the biggest challenge now is to try and rehabilitate that word land and rent. And unless it's done, we will con- our, pol- our politicians will continue to go in circles. I can give you some his- further historical examples of how the word land was excised from the narrative, the European uh, paradigm, but, but that would be going into the
1: so I want to just pick up on um, that, that question more, more generally. Well, in, in your lecture, you were, you were moving seamlessly between Stiglitz on the free form of capitalism, Bingham on the rule of law, and, and King Lear. And I just wonder for you, as, a, as, a, as, a, as an actor, a thinker, uh, and an activist, is, is that sense of gathering different forms of thinking, different, uh, different worlds together? The, the world of the, the economist, the, the legal theorist. the the literary tax, the plays, has that been a sort of driving force for
5: you? Yes, I guess it has, and what has been one of the driving forces has been the fact that I, like anybody who does work, work very, very hard, and I've just had my V.A.T. bill, and I know what I've got to pay in income tax, or have just paid in income tax, less last year because I earned last year. but still an enormous amount, 50% of what I earned. Then you take VAT, which comes on top of that, and you get some of it back eventually, but meanwhile it's not yours to spend. And then I've given up being able to employ anybody because of what Duncan Pickard says in the film which is, you know, I would employ some people because I actually do need help. Um, I do need help for reading, for typing, for all those kind of things, but I don't because of tax. So the first answer is, yes, what drives you once you start having to earn your own living is having work, and what continually drives you back is the taxes you pay on that. Plus if you've gone and mortgaged, and of course it's on the basis of the mortgage, the toxic mortgages that Stiglitz has written his latest book 2010, and he explains it brilliantly, it's on the basis of the mortgages, they didn't mind, they were ready to lend if you weren't earning anything and had not got it. An end in sight of earning anything, and he's given multiple examples. That was done on an enormous scale. And still, at this point in the crisis, as Stiglitz explains, and as we can see with every report we get from uh, the House of Commons or from the Times from the newspaper or from the Financial Times. Still, we've got proclaimed, read about Greece, we've got proclaimed, austerity is the answer. That's the answer to the crisis. Now that is, let's, I mean, if you disagree with me, please say so, because I'm sure somebody will come up with a very interesting alternative. But the answer that's coming down on the heads of the young students everywhere, the pensioners everywhere, I'm an old age pension, thank goodness I can still work. But I can work <laughs> tax. But austerity. So we are seeing what my mother's and father's generation, and their generation before them paid taxes much less, but they paid them because what you had inside, a better education for my children. I'll be able to look after my mother, so I'll pay these various, what we all thought, national insurance, we thought that was for old age pensions, at least I did. I obviously hadn't talked to the right people. Eventually, one day I asked, I, I will try and answer your question, such a good question, Johnson. I asked uh, the accountant who was dealing with income tax, I said, but I'm having to pay, I'm paying my secretary a tiny amount, a shameful amount of money. And I'm paying the government virtually the same amount to employ a secretary. I'm paying tax to employ her. And she's been taxed to be employed. Well, this has already been expressed very wonderfully by, by various people already just now. But austerity being the answer, No, I keep quoting Stiglitz, not in opposition to anything that Fred or never will, in opposition to anything Fred has has said or will say, or says in the film, or Peter Smith or Carlo, or indeed you or, or Jonathan, because the fantastic thing about this Humanitas occasion is that we're able to. Take a little while to exchange, get a clearer view. And basically what we've all been talking about, I've been talking about, is how when you can see, when you have got a pair of glasses or a pair of contact lenses, how can I see better? My vision and my hearing is getting diminished. How do we get through this? And it's already been pointed out, some of the ways that help and some of the things that hinder us from getting through this and questions have been asked. The point is that, and I mention mysterious again, and I I think I'm lucky, Jonathan, because ever since I can remember, now hang on, (laughs) well I'm going to throw Uh, what do you call it, a winger? Is it a winger you throw? A curveball. A curveball! Thank you very much. I'm going to throw a curveball. During the war, because I learned to read when I was very young, and because I hadn't got enough books, um, I read every book again and again and again and again. (coughs) And the first book that I went crazy about, I was about eight years old, lucky me, Katrine. I was given a copy of The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. Now, that was alive for me because we were in the Second World War. It was clearly a very different, even I could understand at that age, we were in a Desperately difficult situation. We not only being we in little England, and it was little and is little, but we in Europe, we in America, we in the Pacific, we in Russia, because at the time that I was becoming very conscious, the Soviet Union was an ally. So, thank God we've got allies. Allies means you're looking at things from a universal point of view, you're not looking them at them from, as we've been discussing, that par blind, purblind, blind point of view. So the pilgrim's progress gives you the terrible obstacles and it gives you the period of luxury when in fact one of the pilgrims Is destroyed, and the period, the difficult period of arriving at Zion, and so I became accustomed in my mind to a very rigorous way of thinking and writing, which is how I term the pilgrim's progress. It's brilliant. It's rigorous. It's very specific. It's got hundreds of notes all the way down the side. Like the Bible. And then after the war, we lived near a church, and I started going to church. And I went to church even when nobody else came with me, and that was an Anglo-Catholic church. So a completely different and yet part of this universal life that had gone on in England for 400 years. This mix of a pure, I do have a puritanical bent, and I've experienced it very often in my life. <coughs> and I've also got a sort of Anglo Catholic bent. But the theatre has lived and struggled in conditions like that, in conflict like that, with the questions of having a roof over your head, having enough food to eat, arising for every actor and actress, or anybody who's ever worked in the theatre the living questions, and how can I buy a book? And how will I find time to read a book? And so on. Um, I've, have I evaded something in which you are? Have you haven't read uh, I
1: think uh, um, you wonderfully an- animated that, that sense that in a way, of course, it was like that in, in Shakespeare's time, the, the, the mm-hmm. impulses of Puritanism and Anglo-Catholicism. Um, and as, as you brought out in your lecture, that, that sense that England was on the brink of, of, a, of a revolution of some huge, huge change. That's um, Dick Leary there. Again. Do you want to just wait for you, you don't
5: need the mic, have a break. It's <laughs> only question of if anyone can hear you. Can you hear me? Well, at the no. back, you know. I
1: can't. Oh, yeah, it, it's, it's, been, it's, it's been recorded for posterity,
5: so that's the benefit of the mic. So yeah, the that's another benefit of the mic, yeah. yes. OK,
0: I just was getting back to King Leary. In particular, the the Russian film, in which poor Tom is pictured as the starving masses, and thinking how extraordinarily effective that was, uh, focusing on Tom as the person who, in the end, has to take over, as it were, who is educated through his experiences
5: and films. Yes. I wish I'd seen that film. This is this the great
1: Georgie of film where you do um, the, the poor naked wretches and there are hundreds mm. of them all across across the horizon. And as, as you say, poor Tom, the, 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 the rejected son of the Earl of Gloucester, who becomes a beggar but then it's he at the end who takes over yes. the kingdom. You can see how how a, a, a revolutionary reading uh, emerged from that. What's I find
5: extraordinary is that Yes, thanks. That's great that you brought that in. Um, but what's extraordinary about King Lear, as you read, reread, there's no decision at the ending. There's no message. So, so do do come in in there. But let, let me just finish one more sentence, please. You've got a lot of people who are dead. They've done what they've done. Lear has learned, and I think Shakespeare had that kind of confidence that you get and hold tight to through the worst situations. a confidence that I will do what I must and what I can. Shakespeare hadn't got any, I don't think, higher ambition than to do what he could and felt he must to write and it is, I think, the most passionate play. Can't leave out sexual passion and love out of life because they're the vital life force of the young. But there's no decision. They don't know what to do. Sorry, do come in. <laughs> well, you
2: spoke about capturing the conscience there is a sense in which the
1: extraordinary scene, when Leah confronts Burton and says, I have taken too little care of this. Mm-hmm.
2: And actually it is the very figure who he is ex- observing, who is himself experiencing poverty, who restates the new order. And it seems to me there is more than a hint of a positive in that. You know, better than rats, for example.
5: Oh yes, yes.
2: Edgar yes. has been prepared for kingship and one feels the rightness of his uncertain taking over. But it's still sort of more positive than say an to take over.
5: Yes, the wonderful thing is that it's not positive in a dictated way. It's positive in that there's hope with the young who have been through this that they will carry on something but as when you get to my age you've seen alas many times some wonderful younger people or same age people doing wonderful work and suddenly they trans- become transformed and very suddenly through some very definite events it's not mysterious and yet the pain of seeing a, 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 a promising human being. I don't suppose any of us would talk of ourselves or anybody else except as a promising sort of person, <laughs> meaning there's things that have promise um, and certain achievements. And yet it can change. I, I, the sense I get, I agree with what you say, I'm not disputing it at all, but the sense I get from King Lear is that they're exhausted. And they're going to have to think a bit about what do we do now. And Shakespeare has, like an eagle, said, well, this is where we are. And a lot of people have died. Where now? That's my sense of it. Speak what we feel, not
1: what we ought to say. Yes. I think there was one more question this will probably be the
3: last one. <laughs> um, Vanessa, you mentioned um, the European Convention of Human Rights at the outset of your lecture. Um, the jurisprudence of the European Court of Human Rights shows that when um, environmental abuse has taken place, the sort of human rights are invoked to the extent that they need to, they damage people's physical integrity, their health, their property, um, and also in very extreme cases, inhuman and degrading treatment. And I think when we look um, at East Africa and the droughts that have taken place there, which arguably resulted from, from global warming and from the emissions that factories have, have done there. that, you they people there have been dubbed climate refugees because people have been forced <coughs> to leave their homes because of droughts and so on. How do you feel about having an autonomous human, um, human rights in the environment, which is sort of independent of the human <coughs> rights that we've currently got in the Charter?
5: Well, it's very important to get these rights put down, because when you've got the rights put down in law, that's the ground that you can do combat legally uh, with. That's, how, that's where you stand on. You've still got a lot of problems, but you, that's the ground you stand on. And you can look at the cases of, I mean, actually it was the Universal Declaration, uh, Referring to, but it's nonetheless from that came the European Human Rights Declaration and Council and everything. That now, one half of this coalition, and I'm not saying all conservatives are bad any more than I would say all Labour people are good or all Liberal Democrats are good or whatever, it's not really the issue. <coughs> people can change, and that's why Shakespeare wrote his play. What makes them change will not be one play, certainly. But if you come to the question of putting in on on law, um, I saw a film the other day of speakers. I don't want to speak quickly, but I do want another chance for Carlo Fred, um, or um, Jonathan, too. I saw a film recently called A Friend of Mine, Trudy Styler helped it get made, called Crude, and it's been a 12 year, more or less, a 12 year legal battle for these indigenous peoples in the rainforest area of (coughs) Ecuador, who their entire land has been polluted. Not only the water is totally polluted, but underneath what looks like green land because an earlier oil company, Texaco, had been forced and agreed to restore some of the sludge pits from the oil. So they restored some of the sludge pits but underneath (coughs) what is grown green grass and vegetation, we saw in the film, core samples being taken and within five inches down or whatever, 12 doesn't make much difference, does it? There is thick oil, petroleum sludge. And the kids have got cancer. The mothers have got cancer, and so on. So the whole legal battle that has gone on for 12 years, which is what this film has made over the last three years, because there was the Ecuador Petroleum Company, which had been paid money to agree to whole lot of stuff, and had done its stuff too, and then in came Chevron. I must stop saying we've got a last I chance. Just that, that's, that's, that's very but r- if you've got it down, it's a great question. If you've got it down, that's the ground on which you can stand. But that's the beginning. And I'm not saying that's a bug, it's the beginning. And that's why in England people have looked to our history of the law and who it protects. But it's not enough. Sorry, it must go to them now. It doesn't protect enough, so that's why we seek for a new law or a ruling that will maintain that as being the law. We're now about to have England break off from the European Human Rights Convention. There's a lot of calling for it. The murder press is calling for it. Cameron's spoken a bit about it. He's got people behind his back. He needs to be happy with saying, Get rid of this, it's holding us back. Now I'm going to stop. So I'd just difficult.
1: like to, I think it's a good moment to end just to ask our other three panellists um, this question of the extension of rights, that the, the rights of man were proclaimed at the time of the French Revolution, and soon after that people began speaking <laughs> of the rights of women, the rights of slaves, indeed the rights of animals. Um, can rights be extended to the environment, or does the language of rights carry with it a language of duties, a notion of with reciprocity, that is actually difficult to extend to the environment. I'd, I'd like to ask our three environmentalists
5: here um, just to remember. One of with the points that is really important is that I'm very anxious to assist them to speak on is we're talking about a reform of the taxation system that's based on an evaluation of a la- the value of land and water, the natural resources. That's what's being talked about, and I believe it's not difficult. What is humongously difficult is this very uncultured, uneducated leadership throughout the world that depends depends for their votes on those who can do will do anything to pay them the money to do what they want. So it's a huge question. Although it's
1: very simple. <laughs> so, rights to rights. Yeah, well, it's very interesting you mention
3: that because um, the law of Mother Earth already exists in Peru and Bolivia, and recently, well, in Bolivia specifically, and in Peru, we saw the first successful case of environmental rights argued in a court in which the rights of a river, independent of its importance to human beings, were defended. And this is absolutely revolutionary and very exciting. Obviously, difficult for us to understand because we live in very industrial countries. You know, separated from the land and nature for a long time. So talking of wildness, sometimes can seem wishy-washy, but we're now actually seeing this play out in reality. And interestingly, Polly in 2008 put to the UN this idea of the Universal Declaration of Earth Rights. Um, and since then, you know, Peru has adopted this. Bolivia's adopted this as law. Um, so and Fred was talking earlier about how we need to really rethink the system. So you know, this is 2012. We've got you know business as usual. As Richard Branson has said, screw business as usual. It hasn't worked well we can literally rethink the whole system and so you know why more than just human rights but earth rights as well and i just happened to bump into someone yesterday who's part of the occupy movement in london and he's working with their like, triple e committee which is on the environment ethics and something else and they're putting together a manifesto now <laughs> a manifesto for business as unusual and more than just business um so yeah like i think there's so much scope for extending rights and ultimately you know we are humans we're humans we have to speak as humans in defense of nature because nature doesn't speak for itself in our law courts it speaks for itself through you know hurricanes and etc. and what the beauty of tricking the river or something um but it doesn't speak itself in in an illegal context and we have to do that because ultimately all our all our societies are built on top of nature and if we undermine this nature, as we are doing by you know, extracting all this oil, etc, etc. We're undermining you know, the scope for our like, existence and happy flourishing within the rest of the Earth community. So yeah, I think we can think big. What's
1: nature?
4: I think this is a problem. Uh, rights uh, go with obligations. What obligations are we going to put on nature? And who's going to enforce them? How do we hold nature to account when there's a tsunami? It's killed a lot of human beings. <laughs> Uh, we have to rethink the whole problem of how we relate to nature. And the reality is this. Life on Earth was the consequence of the cooperative spirit, of beginning with the very first flickers of energy on this otherwise barren planet. Life grew to what we see today through this spirit of cooperation between all living entities, animals and vegetables. And we're part of that system. And we need to find a way of expressing our not just our rights, which we are able to define at great length, but the obligations that go with those rights. By and large, the human rights agenda is bereft of an an equivalent agenda on obligations. Uh, Polly is trying to rectify that to an important extent. I can't see how we can define a gender of rights for nature distinct from humans, or vice versa, how we can see our rights as somehow distinct from nature. So I want to see something that applies to all living entities in order that we find, uh, the word is sustainable, uh, that rhythm of nature, the natural laws, that can once again re-establish the harmonies that created this incredible planet. All the life forms beginning in that sludge on the edge of the ocean, that's how it began. And yet from that we see this huge diversity and it's all because of the evolutionary interaction which was not based on the survival of the fittest, that's a, a interpretation of evolution that fitted the capitalist narrative of the 19th century. It was the basis of cooperation, that willingness of all life forms to work with each other in each little ecological niche to give this huge diversity of energy that we call nature, which we're a part of. So I struggle to see how we can separate ourselves from nature in terms of rights. Well, I
2: think uh
1: the big question is this, we've you know we've become divorced
2: from land. We've become divorced consequently from nature. To become married again, create a marriage, a bond with land, with nature again, things have to change quite dramatically, radically. Um, and for people to become <coughs> married and connected to the land again, it's not enough for them to all you respect. I think the work that's been done at the Wildlife Trust is fantastic and other wildlife conservation areas. But it's not enough for people to just go to these places and admire how lovely you know wild animals are and the interaction between the environment and living systems and animals and you know that's wonderful. But what will really ingrain it, make it part of our DNA is when we become married again to the land. And the only way to do that will be through these reforms. Um, there was um, a manufacturer who was also a sort of liberal reformer politician in the nineteenth century called Richard Cobden, um, and he, very interestingly, he. Um, There's a wonderful chart called the sort of Com- Cobden Rent's Chart, and basically, he shows on this chart how, from the Norman Conquest, ten sixty six, through to 19th century, late 19th century, how the rents from land that were going into the public purse, how they went from 100%, which is where they were, this this actually happened, it was 100% from, from land, all the way down the centuries through the Enclosures Act, depriving um, people of their natural rights, their natural access to land. All the way down to the 19th century, it became about ah, 3%. Um, so that shows you how, how far we've come. We need to sort of start to push so that that curve goes back up again. <laughs> that's that's the truth of it. And it, it, it will take time but that's what needs to happen. And even if we can begin with something, we can begin with 10%, a significant amount, it has to be done, phased in, it has to be phased in, but it can be done. And it can be shown to work for everybody. And <coughs> once we become married to the land again, I think that the way we, we treat land, the way we treat ecosystems, the way we see our profound connection, how we depend on the ecosystems and the environment, will start to become part of our DNA again. And, and the rights that we desperately seek will, will be a lot easier to, to accomplish.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much. So there was a very interesting word that Carly used in that answer, which was bond need to restore a bond between humankind and the land, humankind and the earth. Bond is one of the most important words in Shakespeare, and especially in King Lear. And I think what this bonding between the ancient play of King Lear and the, the modern film the contemporary questions, what this bonding has, has, has shown is that there is a way in which through, through dialogue of the sort that the Humanitas project encourages, we can begin to restore those bonds, both bonds between human beings and communities, and bonds between humankind and the Earth. And for for helping us to explore those bonds, can you all join me in thanking our guests very much?